You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's the first time in almost 30 years that the Justice Department has convinced a jury to convict citizens of seditious conspiracy against the United States. Convicting two members of the far-right-wing group, the Oath Keepers, of conspiring to oppose by force the peaceful transfer of presidential power before, during, and after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Attorney General Merrick Garland vowed to continue the prosecutions over the insurrection. As the verdict of this case makes clear, the department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6. In a marathon trial that stretched over seven weeks, the government displayed hundreds of messages, call logs, and video footage like this made by Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes right after the 2020 election. We have men already stationed outside D.C. as a nuclear option in case they attempt to remove the president illegally. We will step in and stop it. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Jimmy, the jury convicted only Rhodes and a top lieutenant of the seditious conspiracy charges. It convicted all five defendants of obstructing certification of the electoral college vote and various other felonies. So just how significant is this verdict? I think it's important on a couple of levels. First, I think it's a very powerful rebuttal to the narrative that the January 6th rioters were so-called patriots. What this verdict proves is that instead of patriots, many of these individuals, certainly these five individuals that were convicted, are criminals. And these individuals have been convicted of some of the most serious crimes against the government, including two of them convicted of seditious conspiracy, which is second only in terms of its severity and importance, second only to treason. And I think the other important takeaway is whether or not the convictions are going to motivate any of the five defendants to cooperate with the government. So all five defendants were convicted of obstructing an official proceeding. That's a very serious offense. It carries a penalty of up to 20 years in prison. So these individuals have a real incentive to try to reduce their criminal liability and term of imprisonment by cooperating with the government. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there. And then lastly, whether or not these verdicts are going to encourage others to cooperate with the government. So there are several individuals that have trials that are pending. 
Right. And again, involving very serious felony charges. And it'll be interesting to see whether they're motivated to cooperate with the government as well. The verdicts weren't a slam dunk for the prosecution. I mean, they only found two guilty of the top charge, which is really the minimum number for a conspiracy. Yeah, that's true. There are 10 counts that the jury considered. The fact that some were acquitted, some were convicted. What it suggests to me is that it was a jury that really took its responsibilities seriously with respect to each count and the evidence as it pertained to each individual. So they really combed through the evidence and applied the evidence defendant by defendant. And in some cases, they just found that there was not sufficient evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of an agreement, which is the central you know, element to establish conspiracy, including seditious conspiracy. Will these verdicts make other defendants more or less likely to try to reach a plea deal? I think they're going to have the effect of causing others to rethink whether they want to go to trial and whether they want to run the risk of being convicted. Now, again, it's going to depend upon the strength of the government's evidence in each of these other cases that are yet to be litigated at trial. But I think this is sending a very powerful message that you very well could be convicted. And if so, you could be looking at 20 you know, plus years in prison, spending a substantial period of your life in prison. And so I think it's going to cause a number of defendants to pause and reconsider. I think it's going to cause their attorneys mm-hmm. to reach out to them and say, you know what, let's think about this. Let's talk through this. Are you sure you want to run the risk? Because if you do, you could very well run the same fate that these five defendants, uh, including Stuart Rhodes, have with respect to jury convictions. On Monday, four other members of the Oath Keepers are scheduled to go on trial on seditious conspiracy charges because a judge split the trial. So, The question is whether a jury will hold them accountable for sedition, even though none of them were leaders of the group, and that seemed to make a difference here. You raise a good point. And again, it's very important that we not talk about these cases in broad generalities because with respect to criminal liability, it's going to turn on the evidence that is relevant to each defendant. And in this particular case, with respect to Rhodes and Meggs, there was compelling evidence of their involvement in a seditious conspiracy. And that evidence was largely their own words in various text messages and other communications. So that was the most compelling evidence against them that really really, I think, caused the jury to find them guilty. So the question is going to be, with respect to future cases, you know, the four defendants in this upcoming case on seditious conspiracy, does the government have similar you know, compelling evidence coming from their own words and their own statements and their own admissions? And so that's a critical question moving forward. We talked before about Stuart Rhodes being a graduate of Yale Law School and deciding to take the stand in his own defense. Do you think that helped him at all with some of the charges he was found not guilty of? Well, it certainly didn't didn't help him with the most serious <laughs> charge, no. you know, seditious conspiracies. So it's always a risk. It's a major risk whenever a defendant decides to testify in, in his own defense. Of course, they have that right to do so, but it carries a substantial downside, and that is that the 
government then is going to be able to cross-examine the witness, and that evidence that they used to cross-examine could be very damaging against the uh, the defendant. And that was the case with Stuart Rhodes. I mean, they confronted him time and time again with his own statements that again uh, suggested that he was engaged in this conspiracy to uh, use violence to prevent the, the peaceful transfer of power and the certification of the electoral uh, college votes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it may have helped him with a couple of charges, but I think, to be honest with you, maybe it benefited him with the lesser charges. But you look at what I consider to be the, the two most serious charges, or the sedition charge and the obstruction of official proceedings charge, which both carry a 20-year sentence, and he was convicted of both of those. The defendant's attorney said they're going to appeal. Any appellate issues stand out to you? No, not really. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, of course, the defense counsel is always going to say that, you know, we're going to appeal, and they certainly have a right to do so. But you really, in reality, it's very rare and kind of extraordinary where the Court of Appeals will find that there was prejudice at the trial that would justify overturning the conviction. Those cases are very rare, and there's nothing about the proceedings in this case no major issue, no major controversial issue, no major procedural or evidentiary issue that would cause me to believe that any of these convictions are going to be overturned. Throughout the trial, prosecutors highlighted the defendant's links to key allies of former President Trump, such as Roger Stone, Ali Alexander, Michael Flynn, and attorney Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. And Rhodes attorney James Lee Bright said he expects the Justice Department to take this mixed verdict as a sign to move full speed ahead with prosecutions against others allegedly involved in planning January 6th. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think at the end of the day, even though it was a mixed verdict and the jury didn't convict all defendants on all charges, the reality is this is still a major victory for the Department of Justice. I mean, I don't care how you try to spin it. You can't spin it away from that result. And so I think it's certainly going to encourage and embolden the Department of Justice to move forward in a very aggressive manner. And then with respect to the cooperation, you know, the question is, well, what evidence might these five defendants or other defendants have that would be of value to the Department of justice. So do they have valuable evidence against Roger Stone as a member of the conspiracy to commit sedition? What about Steve Bannon? What about Michael Flynn? What about John Eastman? I do think that someone like Stuart Rhodes might have valuable, credible evidence to implicate these individuals and perhaps others in conspiratorial conduct. The question always ends up being, will Trump be prosecuted by the Justice Department? In this case, the defense lawyers said that nothing in all the information they got implicated Trump. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. It's a very good question. And so we don't want to read too much into these verdicts. And so uh, while, again, it's a major victory for, for the Department of Justice, I mean, I still think there's a long ways to go in terms of, uh, of establishing sufficient evidence to bring criminal charges against former President Trump, at least based upon the evidence that's been made available uh, to the public. And even if Stuart Rhodes decided to cooperate, fully cooperate with the Department of Justice, then the question is, does does he have any any evidence, direct evidence, credible evidence that would directly implicate Trump? And that's a big question mark. And, you know, I wouldn't want to speculate on that point. So for those that say, oh, well, now, you know, this verdict is really going to open the door to bringing criminal charges against former President Trump, I don't think we're there yet. And I think that at this point, it's premature to make those those types of claims.
at the press conference. There are questions for Attorney General Merrick Garland about whether having a special counsel appointed is slowing down the investigation. That's a question that's been posed so many times. And is there a real rush here? Well, the problem is, is that we're now close to two years, you know, from the, the January 6th uh, insurrection. And now with the appointment of a, of a special counsel, I don't think there's any question that it's going to delay the investigation, which, of course, is going to delay any possible criminal charges. The real question for me is how long is the appointment of special counsel going to delay the proceedings? And it could be substantial. It could be a substantial delay. And, and, and the reality is, I mean, we may not have have a decision one way or the other, even up to the 2024 elections. I mean, it's it's conceivable. And I think that as we get closer and closer to the election, and of course, if former President Trump is the Republican nominee, I think that the Department of Justice is probably going to be even less inclined to bring criminal charges that would influence certainly the, the outcome of the presidential election. And so I think this process is likely going to be delayed for a significant period of time and maybe even beyond the 2024 election. It seems like they could move forward on Mar-a-Lago, on the Mar-a-Lago documents, because that's a sort of confined investigation there. Yeah, I think a couple of things. So, so I think that's an excellent point. Coupled with, you know, maybe where the public is focusing too much on the Department of Justice investigation, and maybe in terms of criminal charges being brought, you know, sooner rather than later, those are going to be coming from state jurisdictions, not from the Department of Justice. So we may be looking at criminal charges coming out of Georgia, criminal charges coming out of uh, New York, you know, before any federal criminal charges, if any, are filed by the Department of Justice. So maybe that should be the proper focus. Finally, there was a question about the January 6th committee not giving all the transcripts and information to the Justice Department. What is their motive for holding back on those? There's a couple of concerns there, I suspect. And that is, you know, maybe there's some concern that if these documents, these transcripts are, are disclosed, that somehow they may be leaked and that would would interfere and obstruct the, the congressional January 6th committee investigation. So, but again, that, that that's very speculative. You know, I'm kind of kind of looking to, you know, what's the justification, trying to come up with some explanation for that. But on the other hand, what, what troubles me, too, is that why is the Department of Justice having to rely upon a congressional committee right. to assist them in their investigation? Why is it that the a congressional committee is taking the lead on this? rather than the Department of Justice. It should be the other way around. It should be the Department of Justice that should be moving forward at a, at a more you know, assertive, uh, uh, aggressive manner with respect to these serious serious allegations. They shouldn't be reliant on, on any congressional committee to assist them in their investigation. I mean, look at the resources. Look at the, look at the manpower. Look at the, the assets, you know, the FBI and DOJ prosecutors that are available to assist in this investigation. And so I, I, I don't find very I'm, – I'm not very sympathetic to DOJ's criticism that, oh, somehow their investigation is being delayed because the uh, the January 6th committee is not fully complying. They should be taking the lead on this, and they shouldn't be relying upon a congressional committee to, uh, to do their work. Good point. Thanks so much, Jimmy. That's Professor Jimmy Garula.
Pillay of Notre Dame Law School. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Senate has passed legislation to enshrine federal protection for same-sex marriages with a bipartisan vote that demonstrates the dramatic cultural shift in this country on the issue. The 61 to 36 vote on Tuesday was a victory for Democrats who've raised concerns that the conservative leaning Supreme Court could overturn the right to same sex marriage in the same way that it overturned the constitutional right to abortion in the Dobbs decision. President Joe Biden has repeatedly expressed concern over the implications of the decision. The reasoning of this decision has an impact much beyond Roe and to the right to privacy more generally. Joining me is Michael Dorf, a professor of constitutional law at Cornell Law School, to talk about his recent article, Will the Supreme Court Respect the Respect for Marriage Act? Explain why, despite what Justice Alito wrote in the majority opinion in Dobbs, you feel that Justice Thomas was correct, that the logic of Dobbs threatens Obergefell. The primary argument offered by Justice Alito in the majority opinion in Dobbs is that abortion was not deeply rooted in history and tradition as a constitutional right, and therefore Roe v. Wade was not just wrongly decided, but egregiously so. It's true that when he comes to distinguishing other rights, he says that those other rights do not destroy a human life or a potential human life. But that distinction is something of a non sequitur because that's not his primary basis for rejecting the right to abortion. The primary basis for rejecting the right is the lack of deep historical roots. And one could certainly say the same thing about same-sex marriage and, for that matter, other rights, such as interracial marriage, such as contraception, etc. 
And therefore, Justice Thomas, I think, does have a point when he says in his concurring opinion, I agree with the majority, and we should apply this same rationale to those other precedents and overrule them as well. As you point out, the justices in the Dobbs majority who were on the court in 2015, Roberts, Thomas, and Alito all dissented in Obergefell. Does that give us pause to think that they'll be ready to overturn Obergefell? I think probably not with respect to Chief Justice Roberts, who I should say I characterized in a column as in the Dobbs majority, and he was in the Dobbs majority with respect to the outcome, but he didn't join Justice Alito's opinion. And more generally, I don't think Chief Justice Roberts is especially opposed to the outcome of Obergefell. He has uh, seemed to have made his peace with it. I do think Justices Thomas and Alito would be prepared to overrule Obergefell. Certainly, Justice Thomas said as much in his Dobbs concurrence. And while Justice Alito didn't say that, I think that all he was saying was that this case doesn't overrule Obergefell. If enough of his colleagues were willing to reconsider it, I don't doubt that he would be in the majority to overturn. Did Justice Thomas mention interracial marriage when he was talking about cases that might be reversed? He did not. But I think Justice Thomas would say, as probably most of the justices in the majority would say, that the right to interracial marriage recognized in Loving Against Virginia can be independently justified as a matter of equal protection. So Justice Thomas has said that he doesn't think there's any constitutional right to marry at all. But I think he would probably say that if the state does recognize marriages, it can't discriminate on the basis of race because that would deny equal protection. So I don't think that interracial marriage is really at risk because it's independently protected by a different constitutional right. Now explain what the Respect for Marriage Act does. The Respect for Marriage Act does three main things. First, it says that the definition of marriage for purposes of federal law, for example, federal income tax law, depends on whether a couple are married under state law. So if a same-sex couple is married under Massachusetts law and they live in Massachusetts, then on their federal taxes, they're married for federal purposes. The second thing it does is it says that even if a state doesn't want to recognize same-sex marriage on its own, it must give recognition to same-sex marriages of people who were married in another state. And that includes both couples who lived in another state where same-sex marriage was legal and then moved to the new state. Let's say they moved from New York to Louisiana, if Louisiana were to outlaw same-sex marriage after Obergefell were overruled. They would have to be treated as married by Louisiana. And so would a couple from Louisiana who went to New York to get married there. So in that sense, it effectively makes it possible to have a same-sex marriage anywhere in the country, at least if one is willing to travel to another state to get married and one has the wherewithal to do it. The third thing it does, and this is different in the Senate version that just passed from the original House version, is it includes a provision that allows nonprofit religious organizations to decline to provide uh, services, accommodations, goods, etc., to the wedding of a same-sex couple. The Respect for Marriage Act. Why doesn't it require states to recognize same-sex marriage no matter where the marriage is performed? Probably because it's not clear that Congress has the power to do that. 
the powers of Congress are set out in the Constitution, mostly in Article I, Section 8, but a few other places. And family law is generally deemed a matter of state law that is reserved to the states by the Tenth Amendment. So Congress probably doesn't have the affirmative power to create a nationwide law of marriage in the same way that it doesn't have the affirmative power to create a nationwide law of divorce or child custody or any of a number of other things. That's not to say there isn't federal power in the area, right? And so when federal power is being exercised, as for example, with respect to the tax code, and it implicates marriage, then the federal government can step in either with its own definition or as under the Respect for Marriage Act, and indeed under the current law, by accepting the state definition. And why doesn't the full faith and credit clause require states to recognize marriages performed in other states, even without this new law, the RMA? Well, arguably it does, but there has long been a recognized exception to full faith and credit, not expressly included in Article 4 of the Constitution, which is where that clause appears, but recognized by courts that states can refuse to recognize marriages and other provisions of state law where it violates the state's own public policy. To give give a relatively uncontroversial example, imagine that a state recognizes child marriage, as California actually does with the consent of parents. And so you have a a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old who's married in California, and then they move to a state that sets as a minimum age for marriage, uh, 16 or 18 or something like that, the state would be entitled to use its public policy exception to say, well, you might be married in California, but here we regard that as against our public policy. So the key way in which the RMA is lacking then is that it doesn't give the protection that Obergefell gives to marriages performed anywhere in the country. Yes, that's right. It doesn't mandate that every state legalize same-sex marriage performed in that state. But it effectively reproduces much of that, except, as I say, uh, and this is perhaps a pretty big exception, uh, except for couples who can't afford to travel to uh, another state, potentially a distant one, because states tend to clump geographically with respect to social issues. So if they can't afford to travel to a state where same-sex marriage is recognized, then they can't get married in their home state. So in that sense, that, that is a big difference. So now the main focus of your piece is whether the Supreme Court would respect the Respect for Marriage Act. So tell us about your conclusions there. Well, my conclusion is that if you straightforwardly apply the existing precedent, the answer is yes, with respect to all three of the key elements of the RMA. First, Congress has wide latitude to define the meaning of terms in federal statutes, and sometimes it expressly does that. There's a actually a federal statute that goes by the name of the Dictionary Act that defines various words in all federal statutes unless a particular context suggests otherwise. But it's also quite common that federal law will piggyback on state law in the way that the RMA does. I think there's very little chance that the Supreme Court would say that that's unconstitutional. I think there's also very little chance that the court would say that the provision giving uh, religious nonprofit organizations a right to opt out of providing services is unconstitutional. Indeed, the only way this issue would arise 
is if the Supreme Court overrules o- Obergefell, and if a court that would be willing to do that would welcome such an exception. The only place where there's the tiniest bit of wiggle room, I suppose, is with respect to the obligation of states to recognize out-of-state same-sex marriages. And there, most of the cases involving limits on full faith and credit have involved divorce. And there are other contexts in which Congress has exercised its power to, as it says in Article 4, decide the effect of uh, full faith and credit for uh, out-of-state acts. But there's not a whole lot of law on that. And so one could imagine a sort of willful Supreme Court that really, really doesn't like same-sex marriage denying Congress the power to mandate interstate recognition. I don't think that's likely. I also don't think it's likely that this Supreme Court would overrule Obergefell. But I make that judgment based mostly on the psychology of the particular justices. And if I'm wrong about the psychology with respect to their wanting to overrule Obergefell, I could be wrong about how faithful they would be to existing precedent regarding full faith and credit. Tell us a little bit more about the psychology of the different justices. Well, you know, what we're really asking is to what extent is Obergefell a reflection of the values of the justices? I think it's fair to say that when Chief Justice Roberts dissented in Obergefell, he wasn't saying and he wasn't acting on a view that opposes same-sex marriage as a policy matter. I take him at his word when he says that he thinks this is probably, you know, a, a perfectly fine development and he has he has no difficulty with it. Uh, to put it differently, he's not really a culture warrior. He was dissenting on jurisprudential principles. On the other hand, I think that some of the justices, especially Justices Thomas and Alito, regard same-sex marriage in much the way that other social conservatives do. That is, they oppose it. And so they would think that it's not just wrong as a matter of interpreting the Constitution, but that it leads to bad results. Now, in deciding whether to overrule a decision, the court takes account of how well-reasoned the case was, but also somewhat intangible factors like what they think of the prior precedent, whether they think it's a good idea, a bad idea, harmful effect, not harmful effect. On the current court, I certainly count Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch as being perfectly fine with same-sex marriage. I say that about Justice Gorsuch because he wrote the opinion of the court in the Bostock case a couple of years ago, holding that the federal statutory uh, employment discrimination statute forbids sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination in virtue of its prohibition of sex discrimination. So I, I don't see him as having any kind of a beef with same-sex marriage. And I think I make the same judgment probably about Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett. So I really only count two and maybe only one justice who are itching to overrule Obergefell. But as I say, What I've just done is to sort of analyze the individual justices based on what I infer are their normative preferences, rather than just giving you an account of the logical implications of all the legal principles. And that's what I mean when I say this is a kind of psychological rather than a strictly legal analysis. So let me ask you another psychological question, perhaps. There is a great fear since the Dobbs decision that the super conservative majority on this court is going to 
lay waste to precedent in cases this term from, you know, affirmative action, the Voting Rights Act, giving state legislatures unprecedented power to upend federal elections. Do you think that people are right to be concerned? Yes. In each of the three cases you just identified, there are actually four because there are two affirmative action cases, I think that it is not only possible but likely that they will reach very conservative results. I think they will forbid all or almost all race-based affirmative action. I think they will further constrain the Voting Rights Act. And I have somewhat less confidence, and therefore I'm a little bit more hopeful, with respect to what they're going to do in Moore against Harper, the case involving the so-called independent state legislature theory. But I know that based on what various of the conservative justices have said in other contexts, that they're at least sympathetic to some version of this idea that a state legislature can decide for itself how to allocate its electors in a presidential election, or as in this particular case is involved, gets the final say over the drawing of district lines, notwithstanding the intervention of a state Supreme Court based on the state constitution. One last question. A new Marquette Law School poll finds only 44 percent of adults approve of the job the Supreme Court is doing, while 56 percent disapprove. But those approval numbers are actually up a bit from September, where 40 percent approved and 60 percent disapproved. What's happened between September and now to lead to a bit more approval of the court? Public opinion polling about the Supreme Court is notoriously weird because people don't have a lot of information about the Supreme Court. They often don't really understand the meaning of cases. If I had to guess, I would say that the decline in disapproval of the Supreme Court reflects the fact that more time has elapsed since the Dobbs opinion, which was the last very salient mention of the Supreme Court. It's also possible that it reflects views about affirmative action. Uh, Affirmative action has been unpopular for a couple of decades now, so that even blue states like Michigan and California uh, a number of years ago forbade it by ballot initiative. So insofar as there was news reporting that the Supreme Court is considering making affirmative action unlawful, I could see how that would lead to a slight uptick in approval rating for the court. Thanks so much, Mike, for those insights. That's Professor Michael Dorf of Cornell Law School. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.